Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan, and in this episode, really excited to share with you uh, my guest, who is not only one of the most successful riders of his generation, but also one of the voices of TV coverage, both for British Speedway and in the Speedway Grand Prix and Speedway of Nations series alongside Nigel Pearson. Really, he doesn't need an introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. As a rider two-time British champion, four-time Commonwealth champion, intercontinental champion, twice overseas speedway champion, on long track, three-time world champion, and the Dark Lord of a Dirtometer. He is Kelvin Tatum. Hi, Ian. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that I, was great. <laughs> I, I, I say, you don't need an introduction, but it's, it's, it's sort of polite was, to offer you one. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, very generous. Thanks for joining us, though. And, and you've got your new book out, of course, as well, called Tales from the Top Draw, which is your autobiography you've been writing alongside your commentary colleague, Nigel Pearson, which we're going to talk more about. And a lot of the stories, I guess, you're going to tell us about uh, during the course of this podcast are probably things that uh, feature within the book. Going back to the very start of your career, though, um, you're one of the few people I think I've spoken to where Speedway wasn't already a constant in your life. Although motorbikes were, uh, a career on shale wasn't necessarily uh, top of the priorities. Not initially, no, you're right. Uh, we were involved in schoolboy scrambling, my brother and I. My dad was taking us on a regular basis. We were racing pretty much, I would say we were racing sort of three times every month through the spring, summer and autumn. Um we occasionally, I mean, very occasionally, we'd pop up to Wimbledon to watch a meeting during the year, but it wasn't something we did religiously. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, right up until into my teens, um, we were schoolboy scrambling or schoolboy motocross. Um, I actually went into the adult ranks as a schoolboy, as a motocross rider. So um, it was quite a sudden decision and a change of direction um, in my late teens, really. And prior to that, I mean, you were obviously very young at this age and, and probably don't have any recollection of it, but your dad was 
quite a prolific um, rider on the the grass track scene. You're right. He was a very good grass track rider, and he was um, he was somebody actually that. Uh, and I've only it's difficult to get to the bottom of this because that generation they're they're quite reluctant to talk about what they got up to. Sometimes they're quite reserved about it. But my dad and my mother actually went off on this five year adventure sort of dashing around all over Europe, having a wonderful time. Um, and sort of one of the first English riders to end up in the East Zone, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, um, racing on grass string, long, long track racing. Speedway wasn't part of it. He, he never really got pulled towards that. But um, yeah, the, the old man was a good rider, very good rider. And you were a very good rider on, on the grass track, of course, as well in, in your early days. And then Speedway came along. I mean, was Speedway a way to make a bit more money than perhaps um, you would get at grass track, which is more of a sort of an amateur sport, or Speedway a little bit more professional? Or what was the thinking behind all that? Yeah, although early on, I, I didn't have any real ambitions that Speedway would be my job. I, I think once I'd made the decision to to stop riding on motocross and sort of did some grass track racing. I was just enjoying myself really. And I was, you know, the weekends were <clears throat> something I was looking forward to again. Um, I'd missed a period of time of racing and I was sort of in a bit of a mental turmoil about leaving something behind that we'd done for so long as kids. Um, and then suddenly sort of going into a, a different area. Um, and Speedway was something that I stumbled across really and stumbled into. Um, but uh, there, there was never any great plan. There really mm. wasn't. It was just something that I wanted to do because I enjoyed riding bikes. And so you got yourself a Speedway bike, and, and was, it, was it Hackney that you, you started mm. at? Yeah, Hackney were running regular practice days at the weekend, so um, it was the local track to me, so I was travelling up there, weather permitting, of course, um, I was getting as much time in on the track, nobody really guiding you at all. You were just doing it um, as you tried. You know, it was um, <laughs> you're left to your own devices. Basically, you were just given track time. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I was I was having great fun doing that. Speedway obviously requires a bit of luck to make it big and, and to make it into a, a profitable and successful career as such. What was your backup plan in case Speedway didn't get off the ground or, or bike racing in general? I mean, in an alternative universe, what would Kelvin Tatum possibly be doing? Um, I think I, will, I, I would have ridden uh, a motorcycling, but it would have been just purely as a hobby at mm -hmm. weekends. Um, I would have continued to work in the family business, I think. Um, Although I was finding that extremely boring at that stage of my life, I didn't find that very exciting. Of course, uh, <clears throat> racing bikes and picking up a bit of prize money at a grass track meeting was much more exciting than working in the parts department at the Toyota garage. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the disparity between the two. And I started working out that actually I'd won a meeting on the weekend and earned a week's wages. Um, yeah. So, uh that was something that was uh, a little bit more exciting than, than going to work, but uh, probably that would that would have been the course and the path I would have taken if if uh, professional racing hadn't taken off. Yeah, I mean, and, and no no disrespect to anybody listening to this who works in the Toyota parts department. Of course, a very important job. <laughs> but, uh, it was. You uh, it was. It just wasn't quite as exciting as racing bikes, which <laughs> <laughs> everybody can appreciate. I'm sure. I'm sure some people may argue with that, but I think there'll be 
I don't think there'll be a lot of people queuing up for that one. So back at this time then, there was a decent London scene, wasn't there? You know, you had the Wimbledon um, in in action down there and there was a couple of other clubs and obviously we're missing a, a big London club uh, at, at this time. But um, you're riding for, for Wimbledon though and... Wasn't it a story that you Wimbledon were the opposition and uh, in yeah. one meeting and they they, they sort of uh, they they spotted you and they and they took you on? Sure, yeah, it was it was again like like all of this. It's sort of you you happen to be in the right place at the right time. It was a practice day at uh, Hackney, um, and you were given a certain amount of time, and then there was just literally quite an unofficial junior match that was going to take place. Um, after the free practice had finished and one of the lads had got himself knocked him fallen off and hurt himself and i was asked to take his place and i ended up winning two or three races and hackney didn't then contact me um and it was the junior team manager from wimbledon whose name escapes me i should remember that really it was quite an important moment really um but he then asked me to ride for them the following week against Hackney at Wimbledon. Um, so I did, um, because I didn't hear anything from Hackney. <laughs> and how did it go? I actually did okay. I, I think I, I, I won several races. We we did uh, we did two or three meetings. We ended up going up to Hyde Road, which was, I when I look back on that now, it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And we travelled up there. We stayed overnight. It was freezing cold. Conditions were dreadful. Um, but I actually as uh, like an embryonic stage riding for Wimbledon Juniors, I actually raced at Hyde Road, which was extraordinary, really, when I look back on it. But um, yeah, well, I did okay. I did okay. Well, I, I must have done okay because um, the next minute I was being asked to go to the press and practice day for the for the senior team. <laughs> good sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess I was doing something right, yeah. There was a bit of good fortune in that as well because Cyril Maidment, the manager, was a, a somebody that my dad knew. And he knew my dad, and the contact was via Cyril to my dad at the garage. Um, and I was invited up again, still not really fully appreciating um, what I was going to be stumbling into or what I was going to be walking into. Mm -hmm. um, not at all. But uh, that—that—that's what—that was the course of events. It must have been quite a, a, a change for you, though. For you know, only sort of recently discovering Speedway to before you know it, racing at Hyde Road. We know a legendary stadium, yeah. legendary track. Yeah, well, I, I was completely naive to it all, yeah. you know. And it was only now when you, like you've just said, you know, Hyde Road. I mean, wow, um, what a venue! And I ended up being there sort of the second or third time I rode for Wimbledon Juniors. I remember putting my steel shoe down on the inside gate and it, it was swallowed up, up to nearly up to my knee in dirt. I mean, it was that muddy and that wet, but <laughs> I didn't care. We were there. It was like, you know, I was um, I was a bit overwhelmed by the, just the sheer size of the place, you know. Um, but no, it was. And it was it was all happened remarkably quickly when I think about from the moment I bought a bike going to Hackney and then arriving at the press and practice day the following year in the spring. Um, to basically do a, a trial for the um, for the senior team. And uh, when I had a chat with Gary Havelock um, a month or so ago, I mean, he he came through grass track as well, and he said that for him, once once he'd had a go on a speedway track and how smooth it was compared to riding on the grass, it, that was it for him. He was like, well, I'm not going back now. <laughs> this is what I want to no. do. Did you find that? Uh, yes, the speedway <laughs> was a bit more... Uh, uh, 
yeah, it was it, it was a surface that was just pleasurable to ride on. Obviously, you're bouncing around and it's a bit raw on the grass track. Um, and I did take some time to get back to riding on the grass. But yes, I agree with Gary. I think that once you have start doing a few laps on the speedway and you start enjoying riding the speedway bike, um, there is something about it that you get hooked into, yeah. So um, you, you rode there for, for Wimbledon for, what, a couple of seasons then? And Coventry really was the, the, the side that I think you probably were most synonymous with in, in the 1980s, wasn't it? That, you, know, you spent quite a decent amount of time there. I mean, again, mm. another, another iconic venue and sadly no mm. longer with us. But, um, you know, mm. it was where all the action was at really for, for a good period of time in British Speedway, wasn't it, Coventry? Yes, it was. And um, I, I was desperately disappointed to leave Wimbledon. I was away in Australia uh, and I was given the information that they were dropping down the league. So um, I, I didn't want to do that, although I'd never ridden in that league. I, I was wanted to stay in the top division. So I was lucky enough to have several offers, uh, but uh, I chose to go to the Bees. And looking back on it, that was the right decision. Um, but it was very different from the experience of riding at Wimbledon, very different. It was uh, a younger team um, with, uh, there was a little bit more professionalism around and a sense of, uh, there was a real sense of, of wanting to do well and there was more, there was immediately more pressure there, no question about it. I felt that as soon as I walked in the place. What sort of pressure? Pressure to, to win? To win, yeah. yeah, simple as that. For success, and what, did that come from the team or the or the fans? Uh, the, the 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 fans were very expectant. They they wanted victory, and I think what it was is when I look back on it now, and again, this is because I didn't really understand um, the fact that Cradley had been so successful at the beginning of the eighties. That sort of all conquering team they had in the early eighties, of course. And with the rivalry, again, which I was unaware of, but the rivalry between the Midlands clubs, particularly Coventry and Cradley when I was there, I think that the Coventry fans were desperate for the Bees to to uh, to perform well and do well. And you did very well. You know, your first season, you were a heat leader uh, in a very strong Coventry team and um, also performing on the national stage as well, representing Great Britain and, um, of course, not least a world final too. Yeah, well, I rode in three world finals in 85. Um, I rode in the pairs, the team, and the individual final at Oddsall. And so that, again, that happened quite quickly. I sort of came away from Wimbledon. The second season at Wimbledon, I'd missed a large part of the season with a broken leg. So effectively, I'd done not very much racing, and suddenly I was riding in three world finals, riding with Kenny Carter in the pairs final, and then ended up being... Uh, I think the only British rider to be in the world final at Odsall. Um, yeah. So it was quite, and joining Coventry all at the same time. It was a, it was a, wow, I, I, when I was just talking about it now, it was quite an incredible season. Yeah, the 85 world final, I think you were the only British show because yeah. I remember, well, I don't remember, I was there, but I can't quite remember it. But mm. I, having looked back on footage since, there were, um, people holding up massive banners for Kelvin Tatum and stuff. I mean, you, you, rock star kind of treatment, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was a bit overwhelming, to be honest, Ian. And in truth, it all happened rather quickly. 
Um, I wasn't quite prepared for that. And I think I could have done with somebody like a, a Michael Lee, a Kenny Carter, one or two more established riders to have been in that world final. Just to take because, the, the heat off, off the attention. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah, I wasn't ready for that, you know, to, you know, because I was the only British rider in a British held staged world final. I mean, uh, and I'd only been riding for two and a half years. So it was difficult to come to terms with all that attention, to be perfectly honest. Kelvin Tatum, it's his first world final. A heavy responsibility is on his shoulders, as the only Englishman here at Bradford. His fast gating could be the key to his success. Tatum in his first world final on the inside, the crowd on their feet, and up to the first corner. And it looks like the Russian has gone, and so too is Tatum's made a terrific start. Tatum in front, second place is Muller, third place is the Russian, at the back it's Castagna. Oh, what a start for Kevin Tatum, almost overcooks the pits corner, but he's in front, 21-year-old, former public schoolboy. he's been getting in trim with his mum Janet, she's a gymnastic uh, instructor, has been doing aerobics on the lawn, certainly has a full stretch here, is going into the last lap, 338 metres around Oddsall, and it is Tatum in front for England, then in second place Muller, in third place it's the Russian, and the Italian way at the back. Quite a start for Calvin Tatum. He's going to win his first ever world final race. And the crowd are on their feet. Three points to Calvin, two for Egon Muller, one point for the Russian. And, and a crowd as well of, I'm not sure how many were there, but it must have been at least forty or 50,000. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a terrific turnout. And yes, it was uh, a nerve-wracking a- a- occasion. Um, and one that I think that if I just had one or two other Brits with me that could have just taken a bit of attention off of me, I could have enjoyed a little bit more. As you mentioned, though, not your only world final in 1985. There was the um, world pairs as well. And you look at the lineup for that, it was incredible. It was a, a who's who of Speedway at the time, really. Denmark with Eric Gunderson and Tommy Knudsen. Uh, England with uh, yourself and Kenny Carter, as we just mentioned. Uh, United States, Bobby Schwartz, Sean Moran. New Zealand, Ivan Major and Mitch Shearer. I think that was Ivan Major's last appearance in a New Zealand jacket, at the very least. Um, Sweden, Jan Andersen, Per Jonsson, Australia, Steve Regling and Phil Crump, and Poland, Gregor Jizowski and Andrei Hushka. Andrei Hushka, yeah. Andrei Hushka was quite a character, actually. He rode until he was 50. And uh, <laughs> wow. he was he was a proper he was a proper bloke, too. He was a bull of a bloke. He was like a Roman Matitek sort of character. And a smashing bloke, but um, he was around for a long time. But... Poland were in a very different place in those days, of course. Yeah. Um, the disparity between the 80s and the, the, the 2020 is, is stark, to say the least. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, my first world final. Um, it was an incredible journey. We ended up with a silver medal, which, to be perfectly honest, I was chuffed to bits with. And you did that alongside Kenny Carter, as we've mentioned. I mean, just focusing on him for just a second, his legend goes before him and we all know about Kenny Carter but um, quite a Marmite character in Speedway if, if that's the right phrase I mean how did you get on with him how did you find him he's quite known for being a fairly fiery character on his day wasn't he yes he was um, but um, I didn't threaten him in a lot of ways I think he was I think with a lot of his contemporaries he'd, he'd sort of rubbed them up the wrong way um, but that was primarily because he was so determined to do well. And I think that was 
I think that a lot of people misunderstood that as arrogance. Um, it, ca it came across as that. So there's no question about that. Um, he was somebody that was very different away from the track, which I was very fortunate to see. A lot of people don't know that. He was, he was actually a really decent bloke, actually, away from the track. He did grow horns when he got there. Um, and as long as you didn't sort of take him on when he was in that mood, mm. he was fine, in actual fact. And I definitely uh, benefited from his... Um, his will to win. I embraced that rather than actually just sort of getting a little bit, you know, he, he could, he, he might say something or he might be a little bit brash about a certain subject or uh, something, but generally he and I got on pretty well. And as I say, in that world final, he was great with me. You know, he was, um, accommodating there was no arguments over um gate positions for example he didn't sort of stamp his authority saying i'm having this gate all the time um we worked quite well and i, th I think that um i had a good experience with kenny carter mm. where i know some people didn't but i had a good a good one with kenny carter short but um yeah um it was decent and 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 it was a shame that he he didn't win the world championship. He was good enough to, uh, but there was, he was almost trying to win it too much. If I think, if I criticise him, I think it was almost a sense of desperation to win it, and it didn't quite work out. Um, but um, yeah, a, a, an interesting character, definitely. That. Yeah, yeah, and he was very good at like. I mean, I was in the Kenny Carter fan club as a youngster, and uh, okay. he, he was very good with sort of marketing and, and stuff like that. That probably many riders didn't really um, grasp hold of quite as much as he did. You know, he'd spend his weekends studying supermarkets, advertising for his his um, sponsors and, and things like that, wouldn't he? I mean, kind of a different approach to what probably many riders were doing at that time in terms of the business yeah, side he, of it. Yeah, he was probably ahead of his time there in that regard. Um, it was just at a time when Speedway was losing its profile, which was unfortunate. You know, it was coming off of television. Um, this, you know, it, it went through a bit of a, um, a lean time on that side. I think if he had won the championship at that time, it may well have, he may well have been able to keep it rolling. Michael Lee winning in 80, and then we had to wait a long time for another world champion. So, um yeah, uh, it was a shame that he wasn't able to capitalise on that because he, he had quite a strong business acumen around it, you know. Um, mm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, uh, and obviously a huge shock with what, what was to follow, probably what, mm. what, less than a year after you'd been with him in the team. I mean, that must have been a huge shock for, for the whole of Speedway, but especially for, mm. like yourself, you know, having spent yeah. so much time with him. Yeah, it was a shock, really mm. was. Um you know, you're still young. I'm, I'm a young man. I've never experienced or come across anything like that in my life. So um, whether you're racing or whether it's just in any walk of life, um, it was shocking, to say the least, and a great shame, a great shame.
You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan, and uh, my guest in this episode, of course, is Kelvin Tatum. And he's got a new book out where there's more of these stories called Tales from the Top Draw. You can get yours from Curtis Sport. Uh, but more about that to come, uh, the story behind the book. And, of course, some more stories from Kelvin's career, including not least becoming world long track champion three times. And plus, he's going to design his own dream meeting before the end as well. Now, um, we were with your period at Coventry, mid-80s uh, Coventry Bees. I mean, it was quite a transitional time for the sport for you as a rider, you know, getting to race against some of the uh, real legends of, say, the 70s and early 80s, people like Phil Crump, Ivan Major and John Cook. But at the same time, there was the new breed coming through, uh, such as yourself, Simon Wigg, Hans Nielsen, Jeremy Doncaster. I mean, how was it being able to race against some of those legends of the sport? Yes, it was It was lucky, you know, and then obviously the Brits with PC and Morton. Yes. Those yeah. guys beginning to be, you know, just coming towards the end of their time. Um, I would have liked to have ridden a little bit more with Peter Collins, I think, in his heyday. Because Peter, I didn't see the best of him. He was he was not quite the rider he had been in the 70s. But there's no question that he was a very special talent. Um, should have been world champion more than once, I think. Um, you know, and the way he rode on the long track, he was never world champion on the long track, but he was more than good enough to be world champion. Um, fantastic rider. So yes, you're right. It was a transitional period, and again, we bumped into a group of riders from Denmark then that were unstoppable. Uh, we were inexperienced, and we were thrown in at the deep end against these guys. Um, and when I look back on that, that that was really difficult because we were coming up against riders like obviously you know everybody knows who they are: Nielsen, Gunderson, Nudson. You know they had Jano Pedersen. I mean, it was endless yeah. the riders they were producing, and they were all world champions, and we we weren't, and we were, you know, the people like Michael Lee, Kenny Carter, Peter Collins, Chris Morton had been phased out, and suddenly we were we were very much inexperienced riders up against a world class team, and that that was actually tough, and at times quite mentally difficult to cope with with being, you know. Um, beaten fair and square, particularly in the test matches, which were very popular back in those days. What a good race this is, with young Tatum holding the world champion. The world champion pulling all the stops out, trying to make an impression on Kelvin Tatum. But my God, this young man has got a future in British Speedway. Kelvin Tatum, the winner in blue, second in white, Eric Gunderson, and third in red, Chris Morton. And everybody in the stadium applauding the efforts there of Kelvin Tatum, who deservedly won that fine race. There were big events, weren't there, the test matches and running through the course of the season. Is that something that we miss in, in Speedway now? I may argue with whether we miss test matches. My memories of test matches <laughs> aren't, always aren't always particularly pleasant. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Certainly not in those days, just getting walloped every week. We, we, we <laughs> I'd rather, rather not go back to that, thanks. <laughs> we miss them as long as we're winning. No, they were great days, you know, well attended. I, I, I think the fear of trying to bring that back I think that was of its time mm. I think the sports moved on the Grand Prix changed the sort of the landscape and whether there uh, there is a place for test matches now or not I'm not sure I'm not sure maybe maybe 
So after a hugely successful time with Coventry, um, you moved to Berwick, which probably was a bit of a, a surprise for many people. But Berwick were assembling this world-beating team, and you were the captain of this team in in 1991. I mean, how did this move come around from leaving a team that you were so synonymous with to to then ending up in Berwick? Um, I, I was I was a, I was a hot-headed man, and I'd fallen out with Charles Ockertree, and I'd left. I wanted to leave and I did and I ended up at Berwick um, because I'd been conned into going there by Terry Linden as, as everybody else had. Kelvin can offer you a contract where it says signed by the above named rider and put your name on the blue copy. Now this is the first one. Ladies and gentlemen, he's signing the blue copy. And now... Ladies and gentlemen, he's going to sign the green copy. But it's not yet official because he's not yet signed the black and yellow copy. The deed is done. The, the, the overriding factors there are the fact that Terry Linden built a team which was capable of winning the league. He gave, um, I, I suspect for people up in that part of the world, that the supporters probably couldn't quite believe what was happening, that they had these international riders suddenly riding for them. Um, and we, they're going rather well as well. And then for it to all fall apart, I think that was really rather cruel. I think not only was there, there a situation where um, you, weren't, you weren't getting paid for the job you were being, being, um, that you were doing, I reflect on the good people up there that were very generous and very welcoming and that roller coaster that they were put on as well. You know, all these dreams and aspirations suddenly dashed because they'd been duped. That was mm. very, very sad. Um, but uh, I was riding well and things were going good. But um, as I say, it all uh, just ran out of steam because quite clearly it was all built on sand, that, that team. I mean, the club at the time was faced with either closing down um, or moving into new hands and Terry Linden was that man and he was a, an entrepreneur. Um, when he came in, he announced he was going to be running it like a business and he saw it as a business takeover rather than him. Whilst he was a Speedway fan, he, he, he wasn't going to be running it from a fan point of view. He was very much a businessman. And then got all these riders in like yourself. So obviously it started off very well, but things then went sour before the end of the season, even though you had a relatively successful year on the track, winning the Gold Cup. Well, we, things worked well to begin with, Ian. Um, everything was working tiggly-boo. Um, we were going great. No concerns from anybody about financial um, ir irregularities. Um, but... Unfortunately, once uh, we got to the midway through the midway part of the season, then things started to get a little bit tricky. And 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 then because I took action, I fell out with one or two teammates and it all got quite uncomfortable. And I can remember the last time I saw Terry Linden was the back of his Range Rover when he was meant to have paid me and we were on parade and he dashed out of the stadium oh. with a uh, with a briefcase full of the gate takings. Never to be seen again by Speedway people, actually. That really? The, like, yeah, that was uh, that's exactly. I was forced to go because I stopped riding. Yeah. And I was forced to go because I was given assurances that I would be paid up to date when I got there. 
But as we were on parade, his Range Rover left the stadium and, and that was the last time we saw him. But wow. I don't know, you know, like, as a, that's a nice little chapter in the book. I mean, yeah. that, that's something that people will, will be interested to read. I know they will. Um, but as I say, I've got a great relationship when we've been on tour. Nigel and I have been on tour with the Black and Gold Club at Berwick. We've always been very well received there and they're, they're, they're good people up there, really good people. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. Kelvin Tatum is my guest, and uh, he's got a new book out called Tales from the Top Drawer. And that one there about Berwick, as uh, Kelvin mentioned, uh, told in a lot more detail if you get hold of the book. And I'm sure all these stories that we're talking about uh, feature somewhere uh, in in the book. And um, Kelvin is going to be creating his dream Speedway meeting, though, which is something that is exclusive to Humans of Speedway. So find out what his dream fantasy meeting would look like. Uh, we'll do that in just a bit. Right now, I'm going to turn our attention to a period in your career which which I remember you most for and that was when you rode for Bradford Dukes you spent two years at Odsall and um, again a big track very similar to what we know Berwick for being but a, a big track big sweeping bowl and a lot of people found it quite intimidating um, coming to Odsall is what I'm hearing from a number of people Phil Morris said that Gary Havelock said that I mean did you find that both as a visitor and as a home rider there at Bradford yeah I think a lot of people found it quite a daunting venue to go to I loved it right from the word go I was I was one of the most hated riders that ever went into the place as an opposing rider I was gobsmacked when Alan Ham rang me um I couldn't quite believe it um (laughs) because but I loved it you know I loved riding there and I found it the absolute opposite um I used to find that I was inspired when I got there. But I understand what Gary means by a lot of riders would have driven in there. Just this, just the stage of it, looking down on it when you came in to the car park and wheeling your bikes in, looking into that natural bowl. Um, it was a very imposing stadium. Um, and quite clearly, lots of riders found that difficult to come to terms with. Um, but I, I, I loved it there. And I must say that... Um, the, the fans and the club, I, I didn't do quite as well as I would have liked, if the truth be known, but still, nonetheless, I, I found it, uh, it was a good experience, really good experience, riding for the Handboys um, and the team. I wish we could have won the league. We didn't quite manage to do that, but um, it was it was a good experience, very good experience. And as you mentioned, Bradford was um, not a place for the faint-hearted. At the time, it was the fastest track in, in Britain, uh, reaching the highest speeds, not quite up to long track standard, of course, and I think the, that was prior to your long track days, but certainly a place you could wind it on. It was a wind-it-on place, I like that. Winding it on, very technical term there, Ian. Yeah. Um, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I was winding it on. Everybody was pretty much in our team. Everybody used to be out like Gary was brilliant around there. Wiggy, of course, he had a very strong long track background by then. I wasn't really out on the continent by then, but clearly I, I relished uh, that type of track. Uh, there's no question about that. So, um, you know, the feeling of riding up that banking with your wheels in line, with the bike working well, um, was a real thrill and you could really get cracking on around there and um, the speed never concerned me. I think that's what sort of excited me. Um, it was tough on the equipment though, I must say, you had to keep your kit right up to, to speed. You know, there is it's not all positive. You had to plough plenty of money into your bikes to make sure that they were fast every week because if they weren't, you were going to get beat. But um, 
no, it was uh, it was a, a real thrill riding around Old Saul. Great shame when it uh, when it closed. And I, I, I've heard t- periodically of you know possible you know um, people coming back in to maybe reopen it. If that, that if that could happen, that would be great. But I have been there in recent years. It, it would be tough to reopen it as it was with the, with the developments that have happened there. Yeah, there is talk about it, and it looks like um, stock cars are certainly. Um, going to be hopefully going back um, right. and it's just that choice of uh, on the, the question of if, if there can be a speedway promoter to to join them in, in in help funding putting a shale track down I think they have costed out all the improvements that would need to be required um, but right. yeah the jury's out as to whether what the track will look like I know when I was there we were on tour with an evening it was uh, during the day just before we did an evening at Halifax at the golf club and we visited there we did a bit a bit of a thing for Twitter with a, an old race jacket mm. and I thought well the only way they're going to reinstate that is they've got to basically come back and that would obviously compromise the the rugby pitch but whether rugby would be continuing in there I don't know because the Bulls have had hard times I believe yeah I don't follow it but I know, do know that they've had hard times but um you know if if it could reopen that would be a big Big bonus. It absolutely would. It'd be huge news and um, uh, an amazing addition to British Speedway for sure to have um, that track back um, in play again. I think the current economic climate is not helping things in terms of getting a promoter interested, although I think there is rumour that Steve Reese might be able to um, stomach running something at national level, even promoted by himself, was the uh, latest news report I saw. So Speedway, firmly a possibility. I think you just need to find a way of making it happen, but stock cars look like um, they're um, as close as they've ever been. So keep our fingers crossed over the next um, over the next few months, and, and you never know what might happen. Let's hope. Wow. Well, that would be interesting to see. Fingers crossed. And that's the voice of Kelvin Tatum, former British champion and also three-time world long track champion. Now, this is a period of your career that maybe many of us in the UK didn't really followed overly closely because it was happening out on the continent and it was obviously the days before the internet and stuff like that. But you decided to change code quite a bit and spend a lot more time out on the continent. And, and as mentioned, it led to you winning three world titles. It did. And um, it was a conscious decision. I, uh, we moved south uh, with the family and I rode for Lakeside or Arena Essex as it was then. But in the back of my mind, it was, it was irritating me that I needed to do something about it. I wanted to test myself. Um, in 94, I, I qualified for the World Long Track Final without really putting everything into it, but I, I'd, I'd managed to get in there. And I probably would have been in the final if I hadn't have had one engine failure. Um, but I was then, at the end of that year, I thought, right, this is the moment. I've got to now really give it a go. And the following year, um, I sort of dropped riding in England and didn't have I think I had two contracts um, at the beginning of the year I was continuing to ride in Swedish League on Tuesdays um, but um, I just thought sorry I'm gonna give it a go um, and I think I came third in my first meeting down at Plattling in April in Bavaria and from that moment on to be honest I was riding nearly every week it was incredible it was uh, 1995 it's quite a special year for me 
Because there's a lot of success, wasn't there? Because we're talking about the the long track final, but you also the winner of the European Grass Track Championship as well. Yeah, I won the European Grass Track Championship, and then three weeks later, I won the World Long Track Final as well. Uh, nobody had done that before. Um, I didn't win the the Masters Grass Track. I can't remember why. Um, I won the second round. I mean, I blew everybody away, but I can't remember. I might not have even ridden in the first one. I can't remember. But uh, we, it was like a year-long adventure. Everywhere was new. We were on the rostrum. We were in it. The world final itself, actually, in Chisel, was, it was an incredible roller coaster of a day. I mean, um, it, it was un- unbelievable. I was just shattered afterwards. But, um, no, it was, it was a great year. And it was a risk, a big risk, to take away the basic, the, the, the bread and butter of your living. Mm. Um, to go on an adventure on the continent. But I was 30, 31, and I thought, if I don't do it now, um, it, might, it might be too late. And long track, in, certainly where I live, you know, I'm in the northeast of England, and, and long track uh, is, is, a, is a distant sport, really, for, for many people in this country, but it's massive on the continent. Well, it was then. It was then. It was then. Is it not quite so much now? No. Yeah. No, the, it's unfortunate, but... Um, it was. It was big time. I mean, like, you know, going to what people didn't understand. And Nigel obviously came across this because it was something, it's a huge chapter in the book mm. um, because it's a decade that people, a lot of people in the UK are completely unaware of it. Um, but you are riding on wonderful venues in front of huge crowds every weekend. And um, it, it, it's a different discipline. And don't get me on my high horse about what the FIM are trying to do to it, um, but no, it's it was a fantastic experience, and I was I was I, I was good at it, and um, it was as I say, 1995 was an adventure, going to uh, all of these different venues all over um, the uh, the continent. It was it was fantastic. And some of these venues and some of these meetings, they are absolutely massive and, and draw huge crowds, don't they? I know that we spoke to um, Chris Derno, who's the referee, and whilst he's never been on the GP circuit in, in regular Speedway, in the Speedway Grand Prix, um, he has done the World Long Track series and, and said that easily it's on a par with with the speedway grand prix that we know it, it you know across france and germany and wherever else they race you know they're massive events really well attended some great tracks yeah we we you know like places like Mamonde, um in the south of france in, in france there are several tracks that are very well attended um as i say some of the bank holidays in 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 germany are, are also uh, traditionally well attended as well. The, the trotting tracks that you ride on, which are a thousand meters, are just a joy to ride on. I mean, crikey, it's like ballet when you <laughs> ride on those places. It really is wonderful. Um, riding under lights in France is a different matter altogether. And there's a big disparity between riding on the grass track and riding on long track. Mm. Um, very big difference. But it, um, it was good, and I, I got better at riding on the grass track. I knew I had to get better at riding on grass track because I wasn't great on grass track for a while, but I improved. I can remember Tony Knoll, who was the ACU representative uh, around that time, saying, well, we're very surprised, Kelvin, that um, uh, your performances on the grass track have improved. And um, I just think, I think I may have just said to him, I must have just... I must be a bit lucky at the moment or something, but um, <laughs> it was a bit more to it than that. It was a bit more to it than that. And I actually, 
uh, worked together with a frame builder and I got better and stronger as a as a person as well and it was uh, it was a real real big effort actually that period of time and you talk there about technical changes and building frames to to help you out and technical development is something that certainly interests you isn't it because I know you've been also working on those new engines the yeah, um the GTR the, the yeah. GTRs that, yeah. that have been around yeah yeah it's, it's it, inter- it interests me I like it I'm not a great engine tuner far from it but I appreciate what goes on with them and um there's no question that um GM have a kind of a monopoly on the sport at the moment um, I'm not sure that's always a good thing, hmm. um, but um, the GTR had the potential to, to 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 move the sport on, maybe. But um, it hasn't quite happened, which is a shame. But um, it, um, it 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 does interest me that side of it, and I think that um, any of the world champions, if they keep coming back and doing it time after time, you've got to be pretty switched on. You've got to mm-hmm. be. You've got to understand your kit. You've got to understand what you need to maximise your ability out of it. So, um, I'm not alone in that. But it, it's it's. I quite enjoy it as well. It's it's something I don't find it a chore. I think it's something working with really skilled people. It, that I like that. It it, it yeah. gives me a sense of satisfaction. And was it a GTI that you took around Cardiff? You had to, you had to go on the um, on the, yeah, the yeah. track there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I, I did several of that. I did quite a lot of those track reports riding a GTR. At, uh, I rode in Cardiff, I rode at Torren, I rode in Warsaw, which is a different story altogether. Um, Gorzhov, I mean, it was fantastic. I loved doing it. Mm. It was brilliant. It was nerve-wracking because you had a load of the best riders in the world watching Because <laughs> <laughs> you did it literally half an hour before practice started. So um, you had a lot of them sort of clawing over. I remember several riders asked me, what gear have you got? You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just said the right one. Um, but <laughs> but uh, it was, it was, a, that was a real buzz, actually. It was, it was really, I was a bit disappointed when they, when we, we weren't allowed to do that anymore. But um, mm. I rode it like the Friends Arena. I rode in all these places. It was really cool, really cool. Okay, here we go then. Just uh, emerging onto the track here in the Marianne Rose Arena. And what an arena it is. And I've got the opportunity now to start from the inside, from the tapes, do a couple of laps and try and get a feel. So wait for the green light to come on. It's on, looking down at the tapes. Away we go to the first corner. Gonna ride the inside initially. It's a very late eight case there, but it's quite difficult to work out. Accelerating down the back straight into the bottom corner. Gonna allow the bike to now drift out, coming in a bit. And it must have been interesting for you as a rider to get a feel for these tracks, particularly the, the temporary tracks versus the permanent ones that are on the series. I mean, did the bike handle any differently? Did it feel different uh, from your point of view going round those tracks in, in, in terms of how everything handled and, and how the bike worked and felt? By the time I was riding them, early days, I, I know where you're coming from. Early days, they used to chop up mm. and get really rutty and, and tricky. But by the time I started doing my... Um, track reports for the television. Um, I I think that uh, well, there's no question that Ollie Olsen and his team had improved the material and the way it went down dramatically. And when I was doing it before the practice, the track was really quite smooth and slick and a joy to ride on. They it gave a decent amount of grip. Tracks were actually quite long corners, almost like road like a circle. Mm. Um, the tracks in Cardiff and the Friends Arena. Um, Warsaw is a bit bigger, but um, 
the one time when I had a bit of trouble was in the Friends Arena when I actually did it after practice and the track had cut up a little bit and it was a bit tricky. But um, it, uh, to, but to be honest, a, a permanent track compared to a, term, a temporary track, if it's a bit choppy, you know, they, the way the bike behaves, to be perfectly honest, Ian, is very similar, very similar. This is Humans of Speedway. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are in conversation with Kelvin Tatum for some Tales from the Top Draw. Um, now, that's the name of his new book as well, which you can own yourself. If you go to Curtis Sport, you can buy it online and uh, maybe even get it in time for Christmas at the time of recording. Um, of course, if you're listening to this in 2021, you can order it for next Christmas. I guess it, it still works. <laughs> right now, Kelvin, um, some questions for you from some of your adoring public. I put a little post on social media uh, a little while ago asking if anybody wanted to ask kelvin anything and here are some questions for you so uh, if you're ready we will begin a bit nervous now <laughs> don't worry i've vetted them and there's none from nigel pearson in there you're all fine <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, from from Gary Schofield uh, he says uh, can you ask kelvin if he had the gift to reopen any of the now defunct tracks which one would he choose well in the uk yeah that's good well question, we've spoken actually. about it We've spoken about it. It would be if we could reinstate Oddsaw as it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would love to see that track back on the uh, back in Speedway. It was, it was fantastic. This one from Positive Creed magazine. He says, uh, "Hi, Kelvin. As winner of the Ace of Aces, which is a grass track tournament, isn't it? Um, what are your memories of the event? And, and do you think there'll ever be a grass track meeting uh, to match the to match the standard of Ian Barkley?" Uh, the latter part of that, unfortunately, the answer is no. Um, I, I find it very difficult to think that we'll get back to what Ian Barclay did with the Ace of Aces. The Ace of Aces was a truly extraordinary meeting at the end of the year when the weather permitted and it was decent. Thousands and thousands of people, a fantastic lineup, and a, a meeting that you were genuinely proud to win. I was lucky enough to do it. Uh, the Ace of Aces was uh, a, a special event and one of those meetings that was tough but very rewarding if you won it. Brilliant. And you won it, was it two years on the trot, I think? I think I won it a couple of times, yeah. yes. Um, uh, I won it uh 95 when I was Wolf champion and I won it again the next year. It was kind of coming to the end. I didn't do that many before that, and hmm. it's mainly because I sort of was a full-time speedway guy before that. But um, it was one hell of an event. I mean, it, it, they had they had 10, 12, 15,000 people there. I mean, it was fantastic in October, freezing cold. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was like an end-of-season finale, and it was like a world final. It really was. One from Matt Davis that says, what was the idea behind the Team Tatum racing venture with Nicholas Klingberg, and was it successful? It was successful initially. Um, John Postlethwaite, who was the uh, the managing director of BSI at the, at the time, was encouraging people to introduce teams in the Grand Prix pits. He wanted it more like Formula One, where mm-hmm. you'd have two riders per team. In in a in the end, it didn't transpire. It just didn't work, unfortunately. But I was I was lucky enough to have had conversations with John, and I tried it, and I thought I'd give it a go. And as I say, the first year it worked quite well. Um, but actually, Speedway and that trying to set it up in that way just doesn't quite work. It just doesn't quite work. It, it, you know, the World Championship is an individual sport, isn't it? It's totally individual. 
Um, there isn't manufacturer points and things like that that there are mm. when you're working and riding for a manufacturer as well as yourself. So unfortunately, that was a little bit flawed. But um, I had the first year of it was was a really was a great experience actually, and Nicholas rode really well. Uh, Mark Davies says, "Can you ask Kelvin? Did he enjoy his time at the showground in 1997?" Um, no. <laughs> Does that answer your question, Mark? <laughs> Mark, to to explain that a little bit more, um, it wasn't your fault, Mark. It was entirely mine. I was asked to come back into British Speedway by Peter Oakes, who they changed the team at Easter, and I wasn't really prepared. And in truth, I think the, the best thing I could have done was actually to have turned the opportunity down. Uh, I desperately wanted to do well, but logistically, I just found it very difficult. With everything then, I'd been world champion, I'd committed to the continent, and then I didn't have enough equipment at home. Getting somebody to help me, it was tough. And to be honest, I didn't do the job I was asked to do. So that's why I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't because the showground was a track I didn't like or the supporters um, were horrible. Um, it was far from it. I wish I'd done a lot better. I wish I'd done a lot better. Um, one from um, Simply Called Mac, who um, asks your thoughts on the the plan that Poland have currently got about the extra league of contracts where they can only limit riders to, to one other club than the, mm. than the Polish club potentially for, for next season. And do you think that's going to damage our, our products and our, our youngsters um, getting chances and things like that? I don't know. I, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit concerning how much power they have mm. um, where they can dictate to riders where, where and when they ride. Um, but that's the nature of the beast now. Um, I think if this had happened a little while ago, I think it would have been more damaging. We don't have that many riders riding in Poland. Yeah. Really. If you look at the teams, there aren't that many riding in Poland. I'm sure some of them want to, and it will be a decision that they'll have to make later on. But um, the extra Liga is where it's at, and you can't deny that. And if you want to go there and ride against the best and earn a lot of money, then that's where you have to go. Britain can't compete with that. All I would say along that is that I would say that that's fine. The extra league have made that decision. and That's what they have decided. But I think that Britain needs to be a little bit more independent and make changes and decisions that suit us, not trying to be them. Uh, I yeah. think that would be more, that would actually benefit us more. Um, Paul Francis asks um, about you. It's a very good point, actually, about you getting your um, hip replaced um, amidst your still being involved in racing. I mean, mm. not uh, an ideal situation for you to have to uh, encounter because that came from an injury, a, a racing injury, didn't it? And uh, yeah. it required you to uh, to make that you know very very tough choice to, to to undergo that surgery. I mean, that's if it was a choice, of course, but. In the end, it wasn't. Mm. Uh, I had it rebuilt to begin with, and it lasted five years. Uh, and then it got to a point where the, the joint was just gently collapsing. So um, I had to have it done. But the, the replacement has actually been very good, um, and I don't get too many problems with it. But um, something I'd rather not, to, <laughs> not have had done. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it was such an innocuous crash. I mean, I can't tell you, but... Um, 
Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It made life awkward. Certainly, I won a world championship when I came back from it, which was uh, two thousand. When I came back after the operation, um, when I couldn't really walk very well, but um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's yeah, that, that's an injury I'd rather I really hadn't had. Yeah, especially at that time as well, where you were, you know, top of the world. I was flying with... high, you know, and I was world champion. I was ninety nine, and don't know if I would have won it. I would definitely have been in the top three that year, but mm. you know, out of the blue, something like that happened. You know, it was it was that was quite tough actually. And uh, final question from Deanne Clark, who says, um, <clears throat> "Kelvin, I'm sorry about the sachet of tomato sauce. Uh, it wasn't meant in the Surface Cafe eighty eight eighty nine." Um, and says, what's the achievement you're most proud of, inside or outside the sport? It's a good question. I won, I, I was, it was great to be England captain and to win the World Cup as a speedway rider. That was very, I was very proud of that moment. Hmm. And I think the other one I've got to mention is winning the World Championship in 2000. If you read my book, you will understand why. There you go. That's for you, Deanne, and a great yes. plug. <laughs> Let's turn our attention now then to Kelvin in the media. Kelvin Statham, there's a lot of people watching our programme today, I'm sure, who aren't experts in Speedway. Would you just talk us through the main points about the, this fine machine that you've got to ride tonight? OK, right, it's quite different from a normal motorcycle. It has a 500cc single-cylinder engine. It doesn't run on petrol, it runs on a fuel called methanol. Um, it doesn't have any brakes which may sound quite frightening to a lot of people but um, that's that's the way the rules are it just has a fixed gear it just has a clutch that disengages on the start you just drop the clutch and you're away it's just a fixed gear with chain drive um, it doesn't have any speedos any indicators or anything silly like that you've got a throttle and a clutch um, quite a poor sort of seat and basically that's it that's a young Kelvin Tatum back in 1985 explaining Speedway to a certain Martin Tyler. Now, as you can hear there, Kelvin has always been uh, happy to do interviews with uh, with the media. And obviously moving towards the back end of your career, Kelvin, uh, the media world were interested in you and, and your thoughts and joining them on the TV. Obviously, that's what you're known to an entire generation of Speedway fans now for, for being a, a reporter and a, and a co-commentator alongside uh, Nigel on the, uh, on the TV. I mean... These things, though, always an element of luck, an element, you know, it's very hard to, to plan them. I mean, how, how did it all come about and how did it get started, your TV journey? Um, I actually was riding and working for the Sky TV for several years, actually, Ian, really, mm-hmm. because it started in 99. Yeah. Um, and then I retired in 06. So, um, but by the middle of the O's, I'd become sort of quite a regular on the, on the programme. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I did sort of look to maybe potentially go into management at that time, but Sky uh, were keen for me to stay involved and be an independent pundit, really. Um, And I did that. Um, But yeah, that transition coming away from riding and being involved in that was, 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 was great, actually gave you a purpose to go to Speedway meetings and gave you a reason to stay involved. I'm grateful for that because I couldn't have foreseen that. I didn't know that that was coming. Nobody really did no. until it happened, until it happened. So, yeah, I, um, I, uh, I, 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 
I didn't really understand what I was meant to be doing, but um, it, uh, it transpired that uh, they seemed to enjoy what I was doing and I, I seemed to have survived. So it was, <laughs> it's worked out okay. Yeah, surviving in media is, uh, is, is just the main aim, really. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you uh, get asked back in some form or another, it's always a good sign. Well, you don't, you don't get too many compliments, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no. The compliments are usually fairly rare, but it's, 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 uh, as long as you're not getting any... No news is good yes, news is, uh, is my way of reading it. That is true. That is true. No, nothing, yeah. You um, started off as, a, as a, more of a summariser, but I think lately you, you've, you've taken on a bit more of the commentary alongside Nigel. I mean, those are specific skills, yeah. being a commentator and, and commentating on that action and calling it as you see it is, is actually a very difficult skill that not everybody can do, and, and you've learnt how to do that. I mean, it has been a bit of a learning curve for you getting into this sort of side of it, hasn't it? Yeah, it was something I wanted to do quite early on, actually. Um, there, I wanted to have a go at commentary because I found, uh, in all, to be per- perfectly honest, brutally honest, I was bored most of the time um, <laughs> being just a pundit because you get about one question or two questions every four heats. Um, and um, as much as I enjoyed being there and being part of it, um, I wanted to be, you know, like commentary. I just thought, yeah, well, you're involved in in every race. Mm. And I I don't know, just something inside me said to me, I'd like to have a go at that. So um, although the first time I did it actually was in a double header at Peterborough, it was awful. It, it was it was a disaster, really. But uh, and I wasn't asked to do it again for some time. But um, I did get an opportunity to do it um, with Tony Millard, actually, at Sky when we were doing it off tube uh, for the GPs. Um, and from that moment on, um, I was generally asked to do it fairly regularly so that was it was and i enjoyed it it was like racing you know when they when that guy from the truck says go commentators you've got those few nerves it's live and it was brilliant i love it and i still love it to today actually that, that it's, it's great people don't probably appreciate how long it takes to get a good partnership together i mean you've been working um, doing this job for around about 20 years or so now i mean that is a long time but it takes a long time to get a partnership like yourself with nigel things are moving so quickly but when you're commentating nigel needs to throw to you to say something and you need to hand back to him you kind of need to know what you're all going to contribute to that conversation and that takes years and years to get right but you've got that partnership now we have and um it's something that uh, we've clicked and there's no doubt about that and as the time's gone on we've become um really good at working together there's generosity between the two he allows me to commentate because to be perfectly honest he's lead commentator He's a professional broadcaster, um, but at times we're both commentating, which is unusual, I think. Mm. But um, it seems to work, and we have a lot of fun doing it. Um, we feel privileged to be able to do it, and by and large, we, it, it, I think people in, enjoy it. There will be people that criticise and we get too excited, but on the other hand... Speedway is an explosive, exciting sport when it's at its best, and I think we portray a lot of that. You don't want the commentary sounding like you're you're commentating on the balls, though, do you? It needs to have the excitement in there, and if you Mm -hmm. don't get excited, how how is anybody else going to get excited about it, really? That's right, and um, 
we we and also we don't fake it you can't fake that for 20 years you just mm. can't do it you know yeah, you're going to yeah. run out of, you're going to run out of steam so it's it is something cuz um Nigel is a genuine fan of the sport although he works in the sport um he he loves it and i still retain uh, as I say, going to those meetings and going to those events are, are great. You know, it's it's super to be there. I'm going to say, it's continued your adventure in Speedway, hasn't it? Going to these, I mean, maybe this year are the exception, but, you know, you get to mm. go to the stadiums and, and witness it mm. firsthand m- most of the time. They do. And uh, as I say, I've been able to watch firsthand how the sport has evolved and watching new riders come and evolved, you know, watching Bartosz Schmarslik, Ty Wolfenden, all those kids out there now going great guns and riding out of their skins, you know, being fortunate enough to have watched and been witnessed Tony Ricards and Golub, all those guys, Crump, you know, it's uh, it's been a fantastic. It's been a real privilege to watch those world-class guys do it. It's been brilliant. When you look at the sport now, though, as as a um, with all your experience, I mean, is this is other things that you've learnt since finishing as a rider that you wish you'd known earlier when you were still uh, still active? I think as a speedway rider, I, I I could have been better. I think um, I think I could have been. I, sh- I think I should have been a little bit more diligent with. Uh, my 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 equipment probably um it's interesting how i as soon as i started riding on the long track grass track i did that automatically and i wish Mm. now when i look back at that that i'd spent a bit more energy on that side of it talking to greg hancock and those guys you know they 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 went in depth with their kit you know ricardson did as well i think that um that's something that probably I could have been better at. Well, I know I could have been better at. Now, whilst your partnership with Nigel on the TV has been um, severely impacted this year with what 2020 has brought to us, um, you've still been working closely with Nigel on your new book, Tales from the Top Draw. Um, and, um, well, we've, we've talked about lots of things that, that are in the book through the course of this podcast, but there's plenty more stories in there as well. Um, you've been working with Nigel to write it, but the person who writes the foreword is uh, another legend of the modern version of Speedway that we've just been talking about, Greg Hancock is is the, the person who introduces your whole book. I mean, what a coup to get him to uh, to give you the big endorsement. I mean, that must have been quite humbling for you as well. Yes, it was. Uh, I was sh- I was stunned. Um, we uh, we invited him on as a part of a podcast, actually, and it just um, Nigel had been asking me about who can we get to do the forward, and he came to to mind and I sent him a message and he agreed to do it and he said not only that he he would be honored to do it I mean <laughs> wow. I was blown away um a rider of his stature and when you can look back on his longevity his success and the class act that he w- was as a rider um I, I I I it's fantastic to have him do the forward for the book I couldn't be more pleased and where did the idea for the book come about? I mean, I know that you've had a lot of people on online uh, maybe suggesting that you should have done this for, for a little while now. I mean, mm. wh- why why is now the right time? And and, um, and and how was it reliving all of these memories again? The pandemic really is the reason it's coming now. I've wanted to do it for a while, but one thing and another it, it just didn't. There was a couple of full starts and then it sort of got left behind again because you get busy and it, you sort of drop it. 
but the pandemic with the opportunity to with people having more time that helped in massively that really got it going and we probably got halfway through it before Nigel got busy again um, and so that's why the book is coming now um, the book is a read though Ian this is not just a how well I did here and mm -hmm. how well I did there um, there are scenarios that I've remembered my wife has told me that I'd forgotten about um, and that side of it is what I want from the book I want it to be uh, a journey and information and stuff about racing that's around the sport not just what goes on on the track itself so hmm. but generally it's been quite exhausting because my memory is is dreadful so i've had to really dig deep at times and it's been um it's been great actually i found myself just a couple of times recently i've been because we've gone through lots of photographs that we haven't looked at for 10 15 years and i found myself having a literally a quiet moment i had a cup of coffee in my hand and i was looking at three pictures from a meeting in Schiesel in north germany from 1998 when i won a grand prix there and i was just thinking crikey wow that was a cool day and i, I just mm. hadn't even thought about it so there's been some smashing times to remember really cool times to remember i suppose as well when you're a rider things happen so quickly you know it's meeting wash your bike travel to the next meeting ride the bike go back home again, get some sleep, wash your bike, onto the next meeting. It's so rapid fire, you probably don't have time to sit and think about all the things that happened. Yeah, yeah, those days were, well, like, I know that um, Nigel himself just was sort of a bit shocked by and blown away by, he said, well, I had no idea about any of this. Hmm. Um, and, of course, that's what, when people read it, I think I'd like to feel that, that they will be sort of <clears throat> let into that world. In lots of ways, and interesting that that Nigel should say that because obviously Nigel Pearson has has um, <clears throat> ghost written this with you, and mm. uh, he obviously knows you very well. And for him to to sort of rediscover these stories that you, you've probably shared loads of stories when you've been on the road together over those years doing the GPs, I imagine as well that sure. you know you, you it, it it's a journey for for him and and for for us all to to well, uh, to enjoy. Yes, there will be. Um, there's, you know, there's highs and lows in it. You know, mm. it's not just about winning. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of losing in there as well. And um, it's, um, you know, an insight into, you know, when how you deal with those low moments and injuries and coming back and yeah. um, family life and all of it, you know, trying to <clears throat> sort of keep a lid on all of it going on at, at um, all at the same time. So, yeah, it's it's been a... I'm, I'm quite pleased, you know. It's it's just about there now, so uh, we'll we'll be it'll be out for Christmas. So I'm hopeful that um, um, people enjoy it. I really do. I really do. And to get hold of it, then it's um, well, you, the, all the links are on your social media channels, aren't they? But it's a it's an order online kind of job. It's not going to be appearing in shops just yet, at least, is it? Uh, as I no, it won't be. No, yeah. we're going to do it online. Yeah, um, we're hopeful if we go back to some form of normality, people will be able to after do book signings. We'll be on tour, and people yeah. can come and buy it from us. So we're keeping our fingers crossed for that. But initially, we're going to do it online, and it's. It's actually the pre-orders are quite strong. So again, um, there is some interest in it, which is 
encouraging after. Yeah, yeah, I know. A relief. A relief to think, crikey, uh, somebody's going to buy it. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people will. If, if you want to get hold of the book, you need to head online. Curtis-sport.com is the place you can get it. And of course, there's links to on social media, Kelvin's uh, social media on uh, on Twitter um, and um, on, on, on the Humans of Speedway page as well. You'll get links on there, but get hold of your copy. Uh, it's a fascinating read. But just one thing left to do kelvin now before the end of this podcast and that is to do something that i'm not sure if you've ever done before you design your own fantasy speedway meeting what would it look like very much looking forward to this and it's something that everybody on humans of speedway uh who is so far been interviewed by us has done and it's always a fascinating discussion so um what we're going to do is design the whole meeting um coming to your dream one to seven and rules you would change but we're going to start off by focusing on the track now, this is purely the racing surface, the, the shape and the shale of the track that you would choose if you were putting together your dream meeting. I mean, where would yeah. we start with that, Kelvin? This this was between two. Mm. Um, one was Bidgosh okay. and the other, uh, the other is Bellevue. The current uh, one. The, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the new one. I've gone with the new Bellevue. Yeah. Um, the racing there is extraordinary. In a short period of time, that track has been open. Uh, there has been some unbelievable speedway there. Um, it, uh, it stacks up against anywhere in the world, actually. So I'm going to be patriotic and go with Bellevue on that score. Good stuff. Yeah, nice wide track and nice banked bends as well. I think. Yeah, That's Chris Morton yeah. and um, David Gordon. But Chris Morton particularly was very closely involved and very involved in the design of that track. And you have to, although they're no longer involved at Bellevue, the fact is that that they the track is right, definitely right. Uh, and the stadium that you'd put that track in, you know, for the for the spectators, for the atmosphere, or or whatever mm. it might be. Yeah, again, um, I'd put it in Torren mm-hmm. because the uh, you you could go Cardiff as well. You could go Cardiff, but I don't know if if that's allowed. Oh, you can have good. any. I mean, people have said Wembley and all sorts in the past. So, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, in that case, I'd go Cardiff. Right. Um, I wasn't sure whether I was allowed a temporary track. Oh, but... no. The, all the rules have gone out the window after the first oh, I episode. See. Okay. Yeah. All right. The rule book's been ripped up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. So yeah, I would put the National Speedway Stadium track at Bellevue in the Principality Stadium in Cardiff. Yeah. Because Cardiff is a is a stadium that, that is steeply banked. You're close to it. So the atmosphere is fantastic with the roof shut. If you had that track in that stadium, <clears throat> I think you'd have a winning combination. Yeah, I think that Cardiff is brilliant. The track is just a little bit tight, isn't it? It is. Yeah, just you're just bit. restricted for room. Yeah, it's 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 just uh, you can't uh, without extending it. You can't you can't do much about that. But certainly um, the atmosphere in there is is fabulous. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, it's better than all the others. I think the Naradovi Stadium in in Warsaw is close because it's fifty five thousand people, but it somehow lacks the intensity of the principality because it's actually, although it has a roof, it's still open. Mm. It's still open. It isn't actually fully enclosed. Um, and Cardiff, I think with the enthusiasm of, of the Brits in there, I think it, it has it adds something very special. Yeah. The indoor nature of it just makes something different, doesn't it? From It does. From yeah. Yeah. Very much. So. And, and yeah, it, really it alters the sound too, doesn't it? Of the bikes, the bikes have mm. some, somehow got more 
uh, resonance. You can, they, they make a different noise. than Yeah, but it echoes yeah. around that stadium, doesn't it? And, you know, the, the noise doesn't dissipate away. It's just enclosed in it, the smell. Um, I mean... I don't think it's particularly healthy in there. <laughs> I'm sure they've got air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't think anybody cares um, <laughs> because uh, I think it's 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 generally um, a highlight of the year. So, yeah, I, I, I like that combination. Absolutely. I think we all do, and we all hope we can, uh, we can get back to, uh, to, to that this next year. Fingers crossed. Mm. Mm. Um, okay, your dream one to seven then. Any rider, any era, alive or not, no points, limits. Up to mm. you. I wrote two down actually. Wow! And I can't. <laughs> yeah, I did write two down because one one I wasn't sure was right, and then I, I did one more from my era. I went the first team. I've got Major at one. Yeah. I've got Hancock at two. <clears throat> I've got Obi Funden at three. I've got Barry Briggs at four. I've got Tony Ricardson at five, and I've got two youngsters at reserve in Woofenden and Smarjlik. Not a bad reserve lineup. No, not too bad at all. But they can take up to seven rides, of course, in the Britain. Britain oh man! In the UK. So, so I'm thinking they could be quite busy at times. Um, I, the other team was Penhall at one, Gunderson at two, Ricardson three, Per Johnson at four, Hans Nielsen at five, Ermanenko at six, and Gary Havelock at seven. Wow! That's so they were my two teams. Yeah, still a decent team, isn't it? And I'd so, like to see those. I'd like to see those two teams race each other. Actually, wow, yeah, we could do that. Yeah, that yeah. would be some, some league match, wouldn't it? Sort of a, a more modern day lineup versus uh, the, the old school classics. Yeah, with the major funding and Briggs would obviously have to roll the clock back a bit. We'd have to sort yeah. of somehow because it's fantasy, so they're, they're youngsters. So yeah, um, but, um, but it could be quite. Uh, I, I, my my initial lineup was that they had to be multiple world champions. Uh, and they just smiles nicking his second one this year. He just qualified. You know, it was a tough class to get into that. that yeah, lineup. <laughs> it's, an, it's, a, it's definitely an elite lineup. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. So I hope I hope that satisfies the question. It does, and more. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, the referee for your meeting then. Um, I, I I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure about that. I, I've thought about it. Frank Ebden was a referee. <laughs> Frank Ebden was a referee that came to mind, but I think there might be one or two riders going back to the pits. Although regulations now probably take away the influence that Ebden had on meetings, I think that rather undermines him. But I think probably just for a, for a, a smile on my face, I think I put Frank up there <laughs> for a bit of malice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, Frank's had a, a couple of mentions, and, and I think that that is he's, he's had mentions from uh, well, I think Shane Parker particularly um, mentioned Frank in in that that would be absolutely the last referee that that would be anywhere near the, the box for his meeting. Yeah. Um, but then uh, Gary Havelock, he, he chose Frank as well, and he said the thing with, with Frank is you, you knew where you were with Frank. Oh yeah, and so it wasn't like you know one day you got one one version of the rules and another day that you you knew with Frank that everything was to the letter and therefore yes. you you knew you, you knew what what you knew what to expect. Well, you had to behave, and to be honest, he was ahead of his time because now when you look at the rules that have been implicated, particularly at Grand Prix, with you know you can't move on mm. the start. And effectively, that's what Frank was implementing in the eighties. Yeah. So um, as I say. Uh, I had plenty of run-ins with Frank Ebden. I had some fairly forthright conversations with him over the phone. Uh, and he was a nuisance because he loved, actually, his his downfall, it actually, was the fact that he used to, to like to be the centre of attention, which was a shame. Because, actually, the way he officiated was 
was right to mm. a lot of the time. And Gary, I agree with Gary. I think that um, you knew if Frank Hebden was in charge, you knew exactly where you were. Yeah. You know, to me, you knew, because other referees, you knew, oh, yeah, I can do a bit. I can get away with a roller here. I can, you know, to me, you could yeah. get away with that. But you couldn't with him. So, yeah, when you pulled, when you got changed, you thought, right, okay, it's that type of night. You knew you were going home early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he didn't get a lot of time between races. Two minutes was on. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gary, Gary said about that as well. He said, "Well, you know, that was fine for me because I I live miles away, so it just meant I could get out and get home early." I'm surprised he didn't say that was more time to get in the bar. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> there, was that as, there was that as well. <laughs> but uh, either way, whether you, you know, you're quite happy for spending a few quid in the bar or whether you had a long way home, Frank, um, you, you generally didn't have a late night when he was there. And what, I, I mean, it's not a question I've actually asked, I don't think, before, but when you get excluded or you have a run in with a referee and and you go straight to the phone i mean I, I i think i mentioned it to chris derno when i did an interview with him and and you know he was sort of saying well it's just a, a means for me to explain my thinking and but i think obviously i think sometimes riders do riders ever think that 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 that's decision's going to get overturned in some way or, or is it purely just a, a a way to vent your your frustration at the situation it's the latter mm. ian um because um, the only other people that you can vent out are the people that will work for you. Yeah. Uh, because they're the people that you're going to go back to. So at times it's a way of just being able to unleash all that adrenaline and frustration on somebody Yeah. Um, before you upset somebody that's working for you in the pits. But um, no, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a referee change no, his mind. They never do. I don't, they? I don't, they never do. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's just one of those things. What I would say about referees is that they are they are they are a group of people that have a difficult job. Yes. But at times they because I because there isn't this interaction between ex-riders or advice from riders in certain circumstances. I think that's something that would help them if that could happen. Yes. Looking at footage for example of a, of a decision where if I was at the seminar, I would say, well, that's wrong because of this. Mm. You know what I mean? You could have that open discussion to maybe effectively, because a lot of them haven't ridden. I know that when we did the episode with Chris Derno, he said that it, it is a, something that they're aware of and the fact that not many riders are willing to take up being a referee but you're not talking about that you're talking about involving riders in in some way uh, to, to discuss decisions and and sort of help inform uh, referees further uh, on 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 various racing situations well i i, I think that, that that i don't know they must have seminars they must have training courses i don't quite know how the procedure works i've never I've never sought to find out but the fact is is that that's always something that i felt that when decisions are made that I would, as a pundit commentating on a Grand Prix, that mm. I just fundamentally don't understand where they, how they've seen it that way, um, that why there shouldn't be an opportunity for footage to be shown of a race where a referee's made a decision that hypothetically an ex-rider would disagree with and then to explain why they disagree with it because potentially they may not understand. Now, there's always going to be differences of opinion but that's something for somebody who hasn't ridden, and this is not to say that I don't wish to be 
arrogant or derogatory in this. It's the fact is if you haven't, actually having information from somebody who has to explain why a circumstance or why a rider took a particular action uh, to inform them, I don't see what, any any negatives in that. On the subject of referees, um, our attention on this little feature now turns to the rule that you would change. Uh, if you were in command of, of the rule book of Speedway, uh, what would Kelvin be tweaking with? A rule that I would change. Yeah. One of the rules that um, I remember when I was riding in Sweden, we used to, there was a rule that if you kept the same team, you didn't have to change it. Mm. And yeah. one of the um, negatives I find is that, the, certainly for supporters and riders, is that they bounce around clubs every year. You, you know, you get riders not really staying in one place for very long um, because of points limits changing and hence riders having to move clubs. Yeah. Um, I think that's difficult for, for lots of reasons. And I'd like to see the fact that if riders, if a team kept the same one to seven, irrespective of their average, their team average, that they can roll that team out again. I think there was a plan to do that, wasn't there, in in this country or maybe in the Championship League at least in, in some form or other there was certainly some kind of points grace if you kept your full 1-7 to seven together but mm. um, but yeah it, it, and it, I think riders would prefer that as well surely wouldn't they to, to oh, yeah, know that because, you're going to be there for a few years yes because what happens is, is that you build up relationships with local people with sponsors with the area you get comfortable at the track you understand it um, fans can really get behind their their heroes. To become a hero at a club in one year is unlikely, isn't mm. it? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that the continual movement of riders from track to track every year and every every winter, um, I, I don't think it's a positive. I think it's a negative. So um, that's something, uh, as I say, that came to mind. And it helps you plan as well, doesn't it, to know that you're going to be going to this club for the next year. And in the winter, you're not scrabbling around hoping that you, 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 well, you know. Obviously, as long as you can do the deal. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, if you've done a lot better than, you know, if you were a second string rider and you then progressed to being a, uh, your average de- determines that you've then moved up the pecking order as mm. long as you, you get paid a, accordingly but then there's pressure on the promoter of course then to to keep that because if he's got like we had it at coventry that team at coventry won back-to-back league titles it didn't change very much in sweden we won four league titles in five seasons that team just grew up together and was came came good and we don't get that now you don't Mm. you just don't get it effectively you're just a number Yes, you? You're just yeah. a number on the page. It doesn't matter what your name is. It's just whether you're an 8.62 rider or a 4.4 rider. Um, and I think that detracts from it, rather, yeah. to be honest. Um, you've, you've already kind of answered this question in a way. Uh, the, a team from any time in history, from any league in the world, is the opposition. But you've kind of, you've kind of already touched on that, really. But was, was there another team that you had in mind? Yeah, sorry. So what, what what I did do though, what yeah. I did do though is was look, when we were at the Coventry Bees won back to back league titles in eighty seven and eighty eight. Yes, and that was a team which was terrific. I would like to have raced against the Ipswich team that won everything in ninety eight. Yes, that's I think it's been mentioned a few times. That seems to be coming th- th- forward as possibly the, the the greatest British team of all time. I think. Yes, yeah. Ricardson, Golub. Nichols, Louis, I mean, my God, I mean, you'll never see a team like that again. 
Um, but I would like to have seen how our team that won back-to-back league titles stacked up against them. I think we'd get beat by about 10. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might get beat by 10, but it could be quite an interesting night. Yeah, a bit of a home advantage at Ipswich has always been a thing, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, true enough, true enough. But I sense people like God of Ricardson, Louis and Nichols could ride pretty well anywhere. Um, so, yeah. uh, But yes, it uh, was a hell of a team. But uh, um, maybe that just makes up for me not uh, maybe jumping the gun a bit earlier on. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's it's great. And one final question. I mean, if, if when you look back at your you know career and and, and your adventures that you've had, uh, either as a rider or or in the, the your TV days that you've had now, what's the one story that you kind of come back to and, and dine out on, or, or or look back with the fondest uh, memories? Oh wow, that's a, that's a. There's been a lot of them. There's been some very funny times on the television side. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to read the book about that. <laughs> <laughs> not giving, not giving that away. That's, it's almost impossible for me to answer, actually, because I've had some fantastic times. Um, I think that um, you know, from an engine tuner walking out on the first corner because it's a five lap final, and he's told me before the race that um, he wasn't sure if the engine would last five laps. And I've got, yeah, it's true. Right. And that uh, that it was a 900-meter long track meeting and Hans Zirk said to me before the race that if I was in front in the final, in front of Simon Wig, Carl Meyer, Gerd Riss, best riders in the world, that I had to ride slowly on the last lap to make sure that the engine would survive. <laughs> And I was, I was just thinking, are you going to tell all the rest of them that we're going to go, <laughs> we're going to go slowly on the last lap, so that you know, effectively, I will win the race anyway. So I can remember this is clear as day that the first corner was where the pit gate was, and I was in the lead, and I had no intentions of riding slowly on the last lap, not not when I was going to win the meeting. And Hans actually walked across the track to the middle of the track and he was sort of waving for me to slow down. And I remember going by, and I mean, this is one of the most dangerous things I've ever seen anybody do at a meeting ever, where he actually walked where people are doing well over 100 miles an hour going through the first corner trying to slow his rider down. It was extraordinary. Uh, Fortunately, the engine survived and I told him so in no uncertain terms when I came in, but it was a very bizarre crazy moment um but at the end of the day i went over the line and i was the winner and so i didn't care i just didn't care and uh, so don't always listen to the powers that be in the pits <laughs> take decisions out there but that's that is one amongst very very many i've been very lucky to have uh, have had some extraordinary experiences so yeah speedway but not too fast yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Exactly, exactly. I don't, you know, I was trying. To, I was sitting in the pit box, and he was telling me this before we went out for the race. I'm just saying, but Hans, how am I going to say? Is everybody else going to ride slowly on the last lap, and then I don't think so. <laughs> so it was a really. I was riding around to the start, completely sort of confused. I'm thinking this is really quite odd, and I thought, oh, this is nonsense. This is absolute madness. So I just, the green light came on and that was it. <laughs> I rode flat out. <laughs> sort of has shades in my mind of like the, the, a tuner being like uh, the, yeah. the the scientist from uh, yeah. Back to the Future who's yeah. he's got, a, got a cunning plan but not sure it will work. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, we're not sure about this one. But we were going through a period of time when the engines did ha- 
hand grenade quite regularly. So <laughs> I was I was kind of aware of it all, but I just thought that plan is it, it's going to fail hands. That one is not is not got success <laughs> written all over it. I'm sorry, mate, but I'm going to have to I'm just going to have to defy the orders. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant story as 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 they've all been, but um it's been a pleasure talking with you um Kelvin and thanks for joining us. No, you're very welcome. My thanks to Kelvin Tatum for joining us on this uh, fascinating episode of Humans of Speedway. And don't forget, you can get hold of Kelvin Tatum's book, which contains more details of all of the stories we've talked about, really, in this podcast, plus um, many more besides as well, because he has kept the best for the book. So you can get that um, if you head online to curtis-sport.com. You'll find all the info you need. You can look out on Kelvin's social media pages as well. Uh, He's on Twitter at Kelvin underscore Tatum. Also check out our feed as well, the Humans of Speedway social media, because we'll have the links there too. You can follow us on Twitter, at Speedway Humans. Also on Instagram and Facebook, if you search for Humans of Speedway as well, where we'll also search some preview clips of upcoming episodes and uh, maybe the odd uh, opportunity for you to ask questions for upcoming guests as well. So make sure you follow us on there to be involved and uh, find out all the details as and when they come up. And don't forget to check out the previous episodes if you're new to Humans of Speedway. Loads more for you to take in. Interviews with Gary Havelock, uh, the man who co-wrote Kelvin's book, Nigel Pearson, is uh, one of the previous guests as well. Phil Morris, the race director of the FIM Speedway Grand Prix and Speedway of Nations series. Shane Parker, we've got referee Chris Derno. There's so many to check out. Have a look at the back catalogue. And um, we'll hope to speak to you again very soon on Humans of Speedway. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.